Amen. Well, have a seat. Thanks again for coming. Um, I hope you have a copy of the notes, and I'm going to follow pretty closely along with those notes. My introduction is the motivation behind uh, this particular topic tonight is that uh, just thinking pastorally and dealing with uh, people just through the years, uh, this being an issue that comes up in the heart of, of, of Christians often about uh, unforgiveness in our lives. And, and I've been thinking also about the two predominant spirits, not the only two predominant spirits, but two particularly predominant spirits of our age that we sort of find in 2023 America is just a spirit of outrage. We are, I think, an angry culture. I think there's lots of reasons for that. I don't want to get into that. Um, it's, a, it's a complicated mixture that brings us to where we are. But we, I think the, 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 the church in some uh, respects has, has imbibed the spirit of our age, and we are easily offended people. We are easily angered, um, even, um, uh, and we are easily outraged and judgmental and unforgiving towards even other believers in other theological streams or even within our theological stream that might have a different take on certain matters. So there's a, there's a kind of outrage that I think is more prevalent than it ever has been. And certainly, uh, this has been a strange decade or so where this has come about that I think one of the spirits of our age is this idea of victimization. Now, I don't in any way mean to minimize true victimization, but I think that uh, in many ways, the highest social capital in America today is to be a victim. And so people, I think, appropriate victimization, and it becomes the thing that a person can kind of wield in a sort of way uh, against their political, uh, ideological foes or theological foes. And so outrage and victimization have led us to, I think, be in this place where it's a breeding ground of unforgiveness. And unforgiveness, I think, cultivates these ungodly attitudes. And then just pastorally, in the life of the local church, um, as I tend to my own heart and I see how, how I think maybe now, maybe more than ever, I, I am maybe more easily offended or easily uh, feel sort of victimized by just forces out there or whatever, and seeing it even in the lives of people in the church, um, I have a pastoral concern that we think about this topic biblically tonight. I think about uh, difficulties in marriages um, uh, across the board. I think about difficulties in relationships between maybe a person that's offended you that you're very close to. I think about Christians that um, some in this church that have been hurt by past church experiences, or may maybe you're in the middle of being hurt by a church and it's cross point. I don't know. Uh, but th there seems to be, I think, this persistent issue through the ages of dealing with unforgiveness. And I would love for us, and I'm sure I speak for all of us, that we be a church where grace, that we resist being a church where grace is merely confessed but not cultivated. And thinking about unforgiveness and our responsibility to handle unforgiveness and to be a forgiving people is hard work. It's, it's the weed-pulling work of gardening. And so to start us off tonight, I want to read uh, two texts that I think are hopefully familiar to you that are, are um, hallmarks of Jesus' instruction about tending our hearts in this particular area. And I won't talk exegetically or expositionally about these passages so much, but they're really just starting points 
And then I'm going to ask two questions. What is forgiveness and what are we doing when we don't forgive? And then a third question, kind of application, what should we do with our unforgiveness? And we'll follow the notes pretty closely. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that's, that's strong and clear. And then in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable about the kingdom of heaven prompted by a question, a famous question by Peter. And in this, Jesus is, is expanding what he's just said, I think, in Matthew chapter 6 or Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. This is a really significant and uh, convicting passage. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus wasn't asking us to do math there. He was just sort of metaphorically speaking as many times as is needed. Therefore, and then he launches into this parable, verse 23, therefore the out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is, I don't know, several thousand dollars, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So, verse 35, this is a really a retelling of Matthew 6. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, so those are, those are convicting and serious uh, words from Jesus. So clearly, if we're just reading the Bible for the first time, we know that Jesus, that the Godhead is very serious about forgiveness and unforgiveness. So question number one, what is is forgiveness. Well, first, we want to distinguish between vertical and horizontal for, uh, forgiveness, and that's just my term. It's not some, you know, theologically savvy or sophisticated term. It's just the difference between forgiveness that God gives us vertically and the forgiveness that we extend to one another horizontally. So, uh, first, Colossians chapter 2 is an example of vertical forgiveness, this is Paul speaking to uh, the church at Colossae. He says, and you, this is one of the most beautiful passages in all the New Testament about the gospel. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having 
forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So even just within that passage, we, we get a sense biblically of what forgiveness is. It's the canceling of the record of debt. And we know that's not speaking about anything financial. That's the debt of our sin against the holiness of God and the legal demands that the law of God demanded our punishment and our death for our treason against God. Jesus satisfied himself. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross in the, in the, in the, through his own body, and he answered the debt. He paid the debt, and he satisfied the debt, and he forgave us. Praise God. And only God can do that. But there then is a horizontal forgiveness, which we are going to spend most of our time thinking about tonight, that we are then to extend to another. And it is not a forgiveness that can actually forgive sin, but is meant to be an expression, a display of the forgiveness that we've received vertically, bent out horizontally to others. In a sense, it's like living out, we use this type of language a lot, sort of in the church, living out the gospel. I, I don't know that I'm in love with that phrase, but maybe a better way to say it would be, would be the gospel made visible by the grace we extend horizontally. And Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 32 is a, a beautiful verse. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So clearly, we don't have the power or the authority to actually satisfy the holiness of God on the, on the cross. That's only Jesus can do that. But we are to, in a horizontal sense, in a relational sense, extend grace to one another as a reflection of how Christ forgave us. So here's a definition. I searched all over a bunch of different of these little books that I have on the uh, uh, Bible study program that I have. You can just, it's amazing. You can pull up thousands of resources. This is from Lexham Theological Wordbook, a definition of forgiveness horizontally. Forgiveness is the release on the part of the creditor, and don't think in terms of financial, think in terms of sin and offense. Forgiveness is the release on the part of the creditor or offended party any expectation that a debt will be repaid or that an offender will receive punishment for an offense. When describing the removal of an inappropriate offense in this way, the removal, this is important, we'll get to it in just a second, the removal does not condone the behavior or suggest approval for the offense. It's just, in a sense, it's, it's a person giving up their right to hold that against that person horizontally. What forgiveness is not, we want to say as a couple caveats, forgiveness is not saying that sin does not matter or that it didn't truly, truly hurt. And one of the things that I was thinking about and even prayed about this afternoon as I was just looking over my notes and praying that this would go well and that this would be helpful to us. One of the things that I was burdened is that nobody that's here that has been sinned against in a very grievous way, and I know there are people that would fit that qualification, would feel like this is a burden around their neck, a kind of legalistic burden that says you must forgive, or that they, in, in a sense you do, but there's a whole bunch of gospel empowerment and enablement and grace that goes along with that. And I would also not want anyone to hear that whatever may have happened to you that may be very grievous and heinous is, is minimized in any way. 
that that's not what forgiveness is saying or what, what is being compelled in forgiveness. It's not saying that sin doesn't matter. Secondarily, it's not an approval or minimizing of the wrong committed. And thirdly, and this is important, and we could spend a lot of time talking about this. Maybe somebody might have a question or comment about this. It's not conditional on the offender's repentance. Forgiveness is not conditional on the offender's repentance. If it was, much of the forgiveness that we are required to give biblically would never really be able to be given because it would be dependent on somebody who isn't interested in receiving it. Now, reconciliation and restoration of a relationship is dependent on repentance on the part of the person who's committed the offense, but forgiveness, the releasing of a person to the Lord for His justice and His judgment and His mercy is, is not dependent on the offender's repentance. So that's just a kind of orientation to what forgiveness is, I think, from a biblical perspective, from two dimensions, vertically and horizontally. Why is forgiveness so hard? Well, we've alluded to it. It's contrary to the cultural air we breathe. We are a culture that is easily offended. Uh, I, I don't mean to be the grumpy old guy, but I, I, I think to some degree I'm kind of turning into that, so for, forgive me for that if you would. But I do think we, we stare at our screens. Um, I think there are media outlets that are make money off of making us upset and outraged and feeling like victims. I think MSNBC and CNN and Fox News all have their target audience is audiences that they are trying to rouse up and make them feel like victims. And victims pr victimization and outrage produces, it produces uh, a, a money for these people, and you take that, you take that, that outrage and that victimization, and it begins to transfer into other areas of our life. It's the cultural air that we breathe, and it trickles down, I think, to everything we do, and certainly it trickles down to some degree into our interpersonal relationships. So forgiveness is challenging in our context. Forgiveness is costly. It's the giving up of power. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And I think, but most primarily, forgiveness is hard because we're sinners saved by grace, still dealing with the residue of sin, still dealing with the zombie of the old man or woman that walks around with us, even though we're a new creation. And forgiveness is the putting to death of our flesh. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And why do I do the things I know I shouldn't do? It's because sanctification is hard. And in Romans chapter 8, he talks about the mortification of the flesh. So forgiveness is hard. One final thing I want to say about forgiveness before we talk about the consequences or dealing with unforgiveness is I do want to distinguish between personal forgiveness and societal forgiveness. So all of this talk about, uh, the, I think, the, the biblical mandate to forgive I think Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 18 is speaking interpersonally. He's not saying that if somebody uh, uh, kills somebody, that everybody in that family should, oh, we should just forgive them. Or he's not saying, oh, you know what? These terrorists in the Middle East killed all of these people in Israel, so you know what? We just need to forgive. No, the, the, there is... There is a societal justice that God has 
has, has given even civil governments. We read about that in Romans chapter 13. I'll leave that for you to read later. And it's, it's God even imperfectly through God perfectly working through imperfect governments to bring a temporary partial vengeance or justice which will be a kind of echo a shadow of future final eternal justice that is not what we're talking about here so we're not required societally as a as a people as a nation as a city as a law-abiding group of people to forgive crimes against us with no justice what we're talking about is the work of the heart interpersonally between Christians. So that is, I think, kind of a biblical overview of, of forgiveness. Okay, I haven't said anything too particularly hard or controversial yet, but let's flip the page. What are we doing when we don't forgive? Uh, I read a, um, a little booklet and blog post from Paul David Tripp, which I'm getting this from, and he says we accumulate the dark benefits of unforgiveness. I love the way he phrases that, the dark benefits of unforgiveness. So remember what our definition of forgiveness is, releasing, it's giving up, it's giving up grace to that person as an expression of how Jesus has given us grace. When we don't forgive, and, and it, let's, don't, let's not let it, let's not let it hang up there in the ether or in the theological heavenlies, when in our marriages, in our familial relationships, in our friendships that disappoint us, in the people that we love that slander us, in the churches that disappoint us, in the leaders that disappoint us, the, the people that are around us, when we don't forgive them, when we hold on and nurse that debt or that offense, what do we do? What are we doing Paul Tripp says this, we accumulate the dark benefits of unforgiveness, and there's five that he identifies. First is one of the first dark benefit of unforgiveness is that debt is power. He says there is power in having something to hold over another person's head. There's power in using a person's weakness or failure against him or her. In moments when we want our own way, we pull out some wrong thing against us as a relational trump card. So it's, it's, a, it's a power. It's an ace in the hole. Secondly, debt is identity or, or offense is identity. Being sinned against is a kind of identity that it's a dark benefit. It's a bad way that we, we nurse these things. He says, holding on to one another's sin, weakness, and failure makes us feel superior to them. It allows us to believe that we are more righteous and more mature than they are. We fall into the pattern of getting our sense of self not by the comfort and call of the gospel, but by comparing ourselves to another. This pattern plays into the self-righteousness that is the struggle of every sinner. And so if a person nurses and gives himself over to a kind of pattern of unforgiveness, it becomes kind of identity, and I just, I, I see that sometimes in, in our culture, even sometimes counseling, sometimes in the local church, there, a person will take on this identity of, of a victim, and I realize that there are real instances of victimization, and you may truly be a victim of a particular person's heinous sin, but that is not the def defining characteristic of a Christian. It is to be in Christ, not to be identified by that thing that's happened to you. 
Thirdly, he says debt is entitlement. Because all of the other person's wrongs against us, he or she owes us. So carrying these wrongs makes us feel deserve, carrying, uh, carrying these wrongs makes us feel deserving and therefore comfortable with being self-focused and demanding. So you owe me. It's, it's kind of something that we put, it's collateral. Fourthly, de- debt is, or offense is weaponry. The sins and failures that another person has done against us become like a loaded gun that we carry around, and it's very tempting to pull it out and use it when we are angry. And fifthly, and probably most, most dangerously, most, most egregiously, debt puts us in God's position. It's the one place we must never be, Tripp says, it's, but it's the place we put ourselves in when we hold on to unforgiveness. We are not the judge of others. We are not the one who should dispense consequences for others' actions. It's not our job to make sure they feel the appropriate amount of guilt for what they've done. But it's very tempting, Tripp says, to ascend God's throne and make ourselves the judge. And so as I was reading through that, I just think about different ways in my own heart as I was meditating on this earlier today about how I I see seeds of that in my own life at various times, and I wonder if you might as well, ways that you're accumulating dark benefits of unforgiveness. So that's the first thing we do when we don't forgive. Secondly, uh, the spiritual warfare of unforgiveness. I wish I would have entitled this that when when we don't forgive, we engage in spiritual warfare on the wrong side. We get up out of the trench of the side of the gospel and we run across the field and we jump into the trench of the enemy and then we start shooting back at God's people. And you say, well, Brad, give me a text. That's pretty graphic. Give me a text. Where's, it, where's that in the Bible? Okay, I got one for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So the context of 2 Corinthians 2 is that Paul has um, exhorted the church in Corinth to put this person who is unrepentant in their sin out of the church, church discipline, a good thing to do. But apparently this person has repented, and now Paul is encouraging the church to forgive this person and to bring him back into the church um, and to restore him. And this is what he says, and that's the context, but there's this line here at the end, a verse at the end that, that shows us how the devil's at work in unforgiveness. Paul says, 2 Corinthians, 5, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. In other words, you put him out because of his unrepentant sin, and now he's repented, so bring him back in. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that, uh, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now listen to verse 11. So that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You see verse 11 there? Paul is is describing almost sort of second-handedly, just sort of in a passing comment, he is linking unforgiveness to being outwitted by Satan, and he's imploring the church not to be ignorant of the designs, or in Ephesians 6 language, the schemes of the enemy against our souls. So so what is unforgiveness? 
it's, it's engaging in spiritual warfare on the wrong side. It's, it's a temporary moment of treason where we get up from our trench and we run to the enemy's trench and start shooting back at God's people. Uh, Hebrews says this, another, along those lines, Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 15, Strive for peace with everyone <coughs> and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This root of bitterness, this unforgiveness uh, that defiles us, it's doing Satan's work. Unforgiveness is to fight on the devil's side of the spiritual war. And what's at stake when we withhold forgiveness? Well, I think we obscure the mission of the church. First uh, Timothy 3, verses 14 through 15 says that the church is the household of God, uh, of the living God, and it is the pillar and buttress of the church. And I think the argument that Paul is making to Timothy in First Timothy and Second Timothy is that the church is to be a, a living display of the gospel. And if the church is walking, and if, if Christians are, are running rampant over, over one another, or they're harboring, if they're fighting against each other, or they're distancing themselves from each other, if they're causing uh, roots of bitterness to grow in their own soul, then, then it, <laughs> do you see the, the connection to evangelism that our personal unforgiveness when not dealt with, and when a culture of a church isn't serious about this and doesn't talk about this, you put all that together, and it stunts, it blunts, it dulls the sharp edge of the purpose of the church in evangelism. So we obscure the mission of the church. When we don't think about this merely in personal terms, we obscure the mission of of the church. That's huge. And that's on a corporate level. And then personally, we, we put our souls in peril. Um, now, look, I think most of us in this church probably believe and herald the doctrine of eternal security. Um, and I believe that uh, with all my soul. But every now and again, you'll come across a verse like Matthew chapter 6 let me read that again, and we started off, and Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. <laughs> oh, okay, Jesus. What? I mean, there, I, I was reading this, um, this book, and this guy mentioned, and he's a guy that I would agree with theologically, and it was just a thought that just sort of slammed me. And he talked about this... Um, this Greek myth, have you ever heard of it? It's called the, Pro, the Procrustean bed. I guess Procrustes was the, uh, was the son of Poseidon, and it's obviously a myth, a Greek myth. And he was this madman that had this inn, and he had this bed, he had this iron bed, and anybody, he would always invite weary travelers into his inn to stay and sleep on his bed. And if their legs were too, if they were too short and they didn't fit on the bed, he would stretch their bodies out to fit. And if they were too, if they were too tall and their legs went over the edge of the bed, he would cut their legs off so they fit. And so the, 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 the sort of the, the literary point of the Procrustean bed is don't, don't, don't 
cut off or stretch the word of God just to fit on your little theological bed. Look, uh, I believe in the forgiveness, the once and for all justification of the saints. But you got to kind of deal with Matthew chapter 6. If you, for, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, I think Jesus is speaking generally to Christians here, then you're blocking God's forgiveness of you. And that's major. It puts our souls in peril. No, I don't think a Christian can lose their salvation, but I think this is meant to be a warning to a person who builds up unforgiveness in their heart. And don't think about it again 30,000 feet. Think about it interpersonally, the person who's nursing unforgiveness in their closest of relationships, who harbors bitterness, who, who nurses anger, who who accumulates the dark benefits of unforgiveness and, and just goes through life building up in, internal outrage and victimization, Jesus is saying that your forgiveness by the Father is in peril. So this is a major, major issue in the Christian life uh, that we need to touch on. What's at stake when we withhold forgiveness? The mission of the church and the state of our own souls. And we need to feel the weight of that. Thirdly, what should we do with our unforgiveness? Well, we should um, examine our hearts. Um, I pray that as I've been talking, and as we've been reading Scripture, that maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit's been doing work on our hearts. Uh, certainly, He was doing work on my, hearts as I was, on my heart as I was preparing this yesterday and today. I think about Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Consider maybe how we are prone or how we have accumulated the dark benefits of debt in our lives towards other people. It's produced in us pockets of unforgiveness and judgmentalism and victimization and outrage and ungraciousness towards other Christians. We need to, I think part of the work that we should continually do in our lives is to ask the Lord to show us any areas of grievousness in our hearts, and part of that is certainly unforgiveness. And as we, as we recognize it, as we find it, we then should confess and repent of our unforgiveness, first to the Lord, primarily to the Lord, obviously. I think of David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, so our, our repentance is first to the Lord. But I think we also need to, part of the reasons why uh, Jesus in places like James 5 and the Gospel of John encourages us to repent to other people, not because we get our forgiveness or grace from other people or talk to other people or confess our sins to other people, even that aren't involved in the sin, but because just bringing light to things that are in our heart gives us a kind of accountability. This is the light of confession, even to somebody not involved, it, it, it just burns up the darkness of unforgiveness. And so I think we should repent to the Lord, but also to an uninvolved, trusted brother or sister. And then I think we should just pray for Ephesians 4.32 to saturate our soul. Um, reading that again, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Remembering what we sang, Jesus paid it all. This is what Jesus has done for me. Who am I to hold on to this? Who am I to, what right do I have to take this power, to nurse this identity, to, to demand this entitlement, to wield this weapon 
to put myself in God's position. Lord, help me. Help me give up my fleshly desire for control and power. And as you have forgiven me of much more than I need to forgive this person, let me remember that. Let me receive the grace and let me bend it out horizontally. And I just don't think there's any shortcuts to just getting that deep into your the bones of your soul without just praying like, Lord, would Ephesians 4.32 be true of me? Give me this tenderheartedness, this kind of this sort of gentleness, this sort of quickness to extend grace as you have done for me. And I just think that's that's just the hard work of prayer and meditation that we just can't get around. And then finally, um, ask for wisdom about maybe confronting the person who has sinned against you. And I, I wish I wouldn't have used that phrase, confronting your offender. That sounds um, sort of like a particular category of heinousness, which, which may be the case. But just ask for wisdom about confronting a person who you're harboring unforgiveness. But I think you need to have wisdom there. It might be unhealthy. It might be very unhelpful for you to go to that person. Um, and you may need to guard your heart for particular reasons. And I think you should, maybe the person that you trust in the Lord that you've confessed sort of your unforgiveness to in a general sense could give you some wisdom about, the, about whether or not it's wise for you to actually bring that up with that person. Because I think there are circumstances where it may not be. Okay, um, let me just say this, and then I want to pause and open it for questions and comments, and then we'll pray. Um, you know, I think I need to do a better job of sort of sanctification-type teachings like this, because uh, I've noticed as I kind of look over my teaching, um, I love sort of heralding the gospel, talking about Jesus's finished work. I'm like, yeah! Um, those are easy things to preach for me, in a way. Um, and I don't ever want to not preach those things. But th this is like, th these types of truths are the application of the gospel. Uh, I've been thinking about this. I've been convicted about this. Like, what good is it if we herald the gospel, but we don't heed the, the demands of the gospel? And uh, so... So I say that to myself, I say that to a person who's easily outraged, I say that to a person who has nursed unforgiveness and offense uh, very unjustly in my life, and uh, I pray that maybe even some of the practical things and simple things that we've talked about, that even as we've, you've been listening and I've been talking, that maybe the Holy Spirit has been at work, and obviously there's a lot more we could say, but let me pause there and... Um, Pause for any questions or comments, feedback. Anybody got anything? You can go to a microphone if you do. Anybody? Yes, Samantha. As you were talking, I was just reminded that, um, and this might be an encouragement to someone, that like forgiveness is not um, something that is always going to come automatically and easily. Yeah. Like it's something yeah. that we must wrestle with the Lord um, yeah. about. We're wrestling with God, yeah. not with that person when we're mm. working towards forgiveness mm. within ourselves. That's a um, good point. And then I also... Um, yeah, let me just... But that, that's a good point. I just want to say like it, that's another um, spirit of our age is we just want everything 
all, everything good to happen just boom, you know? And so we want to take diet pills or we want this or that or and we just want to boom and we just want it to happen quick. Mm -hmm. and, and that will translate into how we think spiritual growth should happen to us and it's just not the way it happens. And so I really appreciate that point, Samantha. Well, well stated. And then the other thing was that um, I think sometimes in Christian communities we can kind of say forgiveness mm -hmm. but it it looks more like a sweeping under the rug or mm -hmm. stuffing it down inside yeah. of ourselves and yeah. that's not what yeah. you're teaching us here this yeah. is this is like a wrestling with the lord yeah. through yeah. the holy spirit because of what christ has done for us yeah. yep. and it's not just a like blanket like oh i yeah. forgive you move on yep. like you actually yep. have to work through it yeah yep. Yep. and one of the things that i think we probably should have put that's a great point samantha thank you you always say such wise things is that forgiveness is not like the end of the matter, too. Um, and again, that's another false, like, you know, we, we watch these 30-minute episodes. Um, have you ever, uh, Jennifer and I got into this big CSI kick about 10 years ago, you know, and like these incredible crimes were solved in like three days. <laughs> boom, you know, boom, and, and uh, you know, we translate that somehow into the way we think things should resolve, and that's a great point. We will, I think, I think it's an, think about just salvation, the order of salvation, justification, sanctification, which is always incomplete in this life, and then glorification. And when we think that, when we expect too much of the glorification to be part of the sanctification process, it can really discourage us. And I think to some degree, and I don't mean to be pessimistic about sanctification, I think we should, I think people will, there are a lot of people die very, very mature in the Lord, but all of us to some degree limp into heaven, incomplete, and then we're glorified, and then we're finally done with that thing, and then the tears wiped away. You know, that's a great point, Samantha. Anybody else have anything they want to say? Andrew. So um, I just want to thank you for bringing this subject up yeah. because I don't think some people really understand the gravity of it. Um, just a little bit of a backstory. Uh, my dad, my biological dad left my mom uh, about 16 years ago. And if you're waiting for, uh, well, I'll say majority of the time, if you're waiting for that person to realize that they've wronged you. I waited 16 years and it never happened mm. until recently we had some events happen um, where someone got real sick in our family and it kind of led me to a crossroad that we really don't ever know how long we have left in life. Yeah. And I'd waited for 16 years for someone to come and apologize what I felt like was owed to me yeah. when I guess in a world standpoint, uh, I was owed that. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't leave our family. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're waiting, the devil will outsmoke you on that. Mm -hmm. He can wait longer than you. Mm. So um, you don't know how long you have. Mm. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. Um, and since then, me and my dad went from uh, speaking probably twice a year, if that, um, to now we don't, in the past, Four weeks we usually don't go more than about 48 hours talking mm, praise God so sometimes mm. 
you just have to say, you know what, even though I was 100% wronged, mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep pouring into this. Mm -hmm. So, anyways. Thank you for sharing that, brother. Uh, praise God. Yeah, man, that, that man spoke to somebody more than all of this. So, thank you for that, brother. Amen. Spoken like a good infantryman to the devil, <laughs> well, he will out, he will out, he will smoke you. He will he can do more push-ups than you can. And if you're trying to resist him, he will uh, resist the devil and he will flee. So there's a way of resisting what you're talking about, resisting in the Lord by handing it over, rather than resisting in your own strength, which is impossible. Amen. Thank you. Anybody else have any comments? Questions, thoughts? Going once. You guys all gonna go see the Braves play or finish up? Don't nobody tell anybody the score. Is it in the middle of the game? Springer's Springer's looking at his phone. All right. Well, let me pray and. Um, um, you know I. Uh, you guys know that I um, came from a kind of excitable, charismatic stream, and sometimes I, I'm learning to die to this. Uh, sometimes I just, I just want to see things happen with my eyes in my own life and in other people's lives. But I've learned over almost 20 years of pastoring this church, planting and pastoring this church, that the real significant work, oftentimes the real significant work, happens in stillness and quietness and slowly over time. And um, I pray that maybe this issue or just some scripture that we've read or something that Samantha said or a testimony from Andrew's life or a, a word um, would just maybe begin to unlock something that might be lodged in somebody's heart here tonight so that they can give it over to the Lord and, and live in peace. So let me pray for that. Lord, um, we, we just want to think about Jesus tonight and what he has done, how, how there can be a temptation to think about what forgiveness costs us to count the cost, and you do tell us to count the cost of following Jesus, certainly, but there can be a kind of preoccupation with what we have to give up in forgiving people that have hurt us. I pray that you would lift our eyes from that perspective for just a moment and see that, as we sang, Jesus paid it all, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood, the old hymn says. How amazing that is. So, Lord, I guess I'm praying that we would be people that are just amazed afresh at your forgiveness of us, and that would produce in us a forgiving spirit towards others. May the gospel that we love and herald and stand on not be merely words, but it may it reach down into the, 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 the really painful places in our life, uh, places that we've been sinned against. And maybe, Lord, there's been realization in this room as we've talked tonight. Maybe somebody's realized that they have really been the offender and they 
they need to repent to somebody. Lord, would repentance and forgiveness just be regular commodities, regular spiritual fruits in the life of this church? And that's not a sign of unhealth. It's a sign of health. And so, Lord, would you do just lasting, permanent, Christ-like things in our heart um, for your glory and our good. And Lord, we do pray finally for uh, the Middle East. We pray for Israel. We are so saddened to see the heinous, evil, satanic attacks on Israel. And we ask for your protection for innocent civilians, all of them, Arabs, Jews, all innocent people there. We pray that justice would come quickly and we pray that uh, you would be gracious to Israel and to innocent civilians. And we know that everything is under your providential control, even this. And so give us wisdom as we think about it and give us wisdom as we talk about it next week. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.